He says in verse number 27 of Romans chapter 9, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of, ch- of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sebaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. So interesting and powerful verses here. Um, very important for us. Let's review the theme of Romans chapter 9. The theme or the point of Romans chapter 9 is important that we emphasize the clear point as to what Paul is, is talking about here. It is God's absolute sovereignty in the whole, that's a W-H-O-L-E, whole of salvation. The salvation specifically, if you recall at the beginning of this chapter, the salvation of Israel. The big question is, leading up to this chapter is, has Israel been cast away? Did God push off Israel? Did he do away with Israel? Did he break the covenant with Israel? And Paul is answering that question by, by visiting, essentially in Romans chapter 9, the history of Israel starting with Abraham. And it's been a wonderful journey looking at all these many individuals through this chapter. But tonight we come to Isaiah. And this is the doctrine of the remnant. Uh, in other words, God's sovereign choice and salvation. Those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, they will be saved. They will be saved. Um, it is very important for us to have that, a place for that in our minds and in our hearts. Um, if you recall, in verses 23 through 26, we visited the last time we were together, we talked about Hosea. Do you remember Hosea? Hosea, that wonderful Old Testament minor prophet, um, and he clearly mentions, and Paul brought this forth, that God was going to save the Gentiles, that he was going to open salvation to the Gentiles. Before Hosea, talking about Hosea in Romans chapter 9, we visited the doctrine of reprobation, and that was in verse 23. Uh, Look at verse number 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Those vessels of mercy are believers. I love that phrase, vessels of mercy. Um, it, it emphasizes the, the work of God in our lives as believers. We are vessels of mercy that have been afore prepared unto glory. And the word mercy is very important because that means we have not received what we deserved. And that Christ took upon himself what we deserved, and therefore we have now become the vessels of mercy. God did not give us what we deserved. In fact, Christ stood in our place as our substitute upon the cross uh, that we would be set free from our sins. So that is us. That's talking about us. And those that have not been chosen unto salvation have been passed over. They've been, they've been passed over by God, uh, like Esau. But Paul is just absolutely, through this chapter, he is just hammering, hammering out every very important point in detail. I would consider Romans chapter 9 to be the hub of of the doctrine of salvation. And what I mean by the hub is like you can picture a wheel, a tire. That hub in the middle of the tire is what everything is connected to. 
Uh, your power comes through the hub. Your wheel is attached to the hub. You have movement through the hub. I mean, this is, this is the central, I would consider the central chapter of God's work of salvation. And, and you say, why are we just like totally going so slowly and chipping through these little many different things? I mean, it gets kind of dull and dry. Uh, I beg to differ. And, and this is why. Because as believers, we must... We must be careful, deliberate, prayerful, intentional whenever it comes to the study of God's Word. We should be intentional, intentional and deliberate when we look at God's truth. We shouldn't just simply be weak-minded about it. It's important for us to, to seek to understand what God has contained in His Scriptures. This, Romans chapter 9, is vital to us as believers it doesn't get much clearer than this. I want to ask you just to simply think about something tonight as we visit these verses. Just think about salvation for a moment. It is imperative that we understand the outworking of salvation. You say, why? What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13? Do you remember these verses? Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We know that verse. We like that verse. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 is very important. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Those two verses cannot be separated. Yes, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but don't separate that from verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We... When we lose sight that God is active in our salvation, we are on a dangerous precipice. It's a very dangerous, it's like a blind man, as I've heard several preachers and pastors say, especially George Whitfield would often use this analogy of a blind man walking on the edge or the brim of a canyon. And he's walking right on the edge, and he is, he's about to go one way or another. And as George Whitfield was using that illustration, there was a man in the crowd who heard him and said, he, he jumped up and yelled because the intensity of George Whitfield's illustration literally had him visualizing in his mind a blind man about to fall off the edge of a cliff. And, and if, we do not, if we're not careful and deliberate and intentional with our understanding of the doctrine of salvation, we end up in great error, deadly error. Let me show you how. And I was, it's interesting to me, how many weeks do you think we've been studying Romans chapter 9? Has it been maybe two months? I should have looked up when the first date was, whenever we, the first date, <laughs> when the first verse was the time that we went through the first verse, but it's been several months. And, and I hope that you find it as important as I do to look at these many different things. But when we give careful attention to the doctrines found in Scripture, it's like this, picture this. Have I ever told you the story about how I asked my wife to marry me? It was in public, like, in front of a hun couple hundred people. And my wife and I, were we were in a skit together at church. It was on Valentine's Day. It was a Valentine's Day dinner that we were having at the church. And uh, honestly, I think there was probably about 150 people at this, at this little gathering, this, this dinner that we had. And my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, were in a skit together. And she was like Annie Oakley, I think. I, I can't remember anything about the skit. All I can remember is that that ring was in my coat pocket that was part of the stage prop. The, the, my coat was hanging on a coat rack, and in that coat was the ring. She had no idea I was going to ask her to marry me. 
She, no, all, the only people that knew were her dad and the pastor. And the pastor actually said, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it tonight. I'm like, come on, I got to do it now. I want to do it now. And so the time came, the end of the skit came, and there I am. I popped out the ring, and I dropped down on one knee and asked her to marry me, and she stood there like this. <laughs> and and she, she didn't know what was going on. But nonetheless, for about an hour and a half, I sat at the table, and can you guess what my mind was thinking about? It wasn't thinking about the skit. It wasn't even thinking about the jacket. What it was thinking about, my mind was thinking about the hundreds of people that were brushing shoulders with that jacket coming back and forth from the, the dinner table line. And there I am, several tables away. I'm thinking, if somebody picks up the wrong coat, they're walking off with my, with my, with my wife's wedding ring in that coat. And there it is. Uh, so every, you know, I had my back to it, so every time I'm looking over my shoulder, like, and everybody at the table is like, what is wrong with you? Just get a grip. I mean, come on. You know everybody here. I'm just thinking, no, you don't know what I'm doing right now. If somebody takes that coat, I'm in big trouble. But my mind was fixated on that ring because that ring had value. Right? Not only monetary value. That was the ring that I'm going to give my future bride. It means something to me. It would mean something to my wife. And, and, and for me to lose that would be, would be very painful. Why don't we look at doctrines that way? Why don't we treat the nuggets of truth found all throughout the scriptures like diamonds? Why are we not always looking over our shoulders and looking ahead and looking out at the horizon and saying, this is worth protecting. This has value to me. This has value to God. That's the way we should look at these things. This isn't just something to approach the scriptures and say, ah, well, you know, we could take it or leave it. If we can just agree to disagree on some of these things. And there are those issues. There are those issues that we can back away from dogma with. But there are some issues, especially when it comes to salvation, that we cannot back down from. They must be treated like diamonds. They must be treated of, of utmost value. They must be protected. They're very important. And that is what we're looking at tonight. That is what we are visiting this evening. Something very, very important. Let me give you another, just to try to emphasize why this is so important. I read a doctrinal statement this week. How many of you are like me, really like theology nerds, and you just like reading doctrinal statements? <laughs> like Kevin's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, do, doctrinal statements are very important. That's why there have been historic creeds Right? We, on, when we have communion, we, we affirm the Apostles' Creed because it's a historic creed and it summarizes many important truths that are found in the Christian faith. Not all. It doesn't, support, it doesn't summarize all the Christian doctrine. It's just a, it's a very thinned, streamlined confession, uh, Apostles' Creed. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, a very good summary of doctrine. Very good. Some of you took those that I had last Wednesday, which was very good. You can survey doctrine in those things. The Westminster Confession, those are good confessions, summaries of biblical doctrine. It is very important to think carefully, critically, 
and intentionally about doctrinal statements. It's so very important. This week I was reading a doctrinal statement where I'm going to read this quote to you from the doctrinal statement, and I want you to tell me what you see, if you see anything wrong with it, okay? Let's just have a little, a little, uh, a little test here, okay? This is the very first two sent. These are the very first two sentences in this doctrinal statement, which was only about a page long. That should tell you a lot right now. Only about a page long. This is the first two. These are the first two sentences with regard to salvation. The section on salvation. Let me know what you think about this. Quote: We believe that those who receive the new birth and live according to the righteous example of Christ will receive eternal life. Period. Those who do not receive the new birth and live unrighteously will receive eternal damnation. Period. End quote. Let me, let me read it again so that you can think critically. It's black and white. Well, t- time out real quick. That's your true. Your true is very, very simplified. Very, very shallow. Okay? So, here it is again. I'm going to read it slowly. And I'm going to emphasize one word. Okay. We believe that those who receive the new birth and live according to the righteous example of Christ will receive eternal life. Those who do not receive the new birth and live unrighteously will receive eternal damnation. Do you hear or see any problems in that? I did emphasize and, but it's and. What's the problem with that? Is your salvation contingent upon you? Oh. Do we need to be born again? Must we be born again? Yes, John 3, all day long. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's, that's Jesus speaking. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you be born again. How, the big question that we're not going to visit right now, I've done so plenty of times in the past, how are we born again? Secondly, if your salvation is 99.99% God and 0.01% you, we're lost. We're lost. Let me emphasize this sentence again. We believe that those who receive the new birth, I'm game with that. I'll go all day long with that. But you lose me at and. Because what's happening here, let me just point this to the surface, bring this to the surface. What's happening here is these individuals are taking the new birth, which is a work of God, right? Faith, repentance, all a gift from God. Regeneration, work of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. And they're coupling sanctification. Do you see it? So based on our works. Yes! Yes, Kim. Very, you get the trophy. This this is what they call semi-Pelagianism. Okay? That's a big word. You can Google it later. We've talked about it in the past. We don't have time to revisit. Semi-Pelagianism is very popular today. It's, uh, and I would even go as far as to say it's almost a regurgitation of Pelagianism, which is a 4th century heresy anyway. But nonetheless, we are not contributing. Our sanctification in no way 
in no way impacts our salvation in the sense that it does not solidify or secure or make uh, final. Our sanctification does not finalize our salvation. Our sanctification, our sanctification is demonstrating the fact that we are saved. Do you, do you follow me with that? Our sanctification, which is, which is guys say that it's synergistic. I would say it's more monergistic. Nonetheless, our sanctification is a, is a result of our salvation, not, not a means of our salvation. Do you see what I'm saying? Why is it important for us to think critically and carefully when we read statements like that? Because if I'm teaching you, yes, your salvation is a result of the new birth and all you can do, I've just jumped into, I've just jumped into Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness stuff. It's, it's that fine. The, the, the line between error and truth is as thin as a hair. It is is so important that we have right understanding of the diamonds of doctrine in the Bible. We must not embrace an idea or a doctrine that says that salvation is a result of any amount of work on our part whatsoever. It's dangerous. Let's think about the five solas. If you go to a church that does not embrace the five solas, you're in a false church. You're in a false church. If you go to a church that does not embrace the five solas, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If you find a church that does not embrace those five solas, you found a false church. You found a church that will not preach the gospel. Because what they're going to do is they're going to say grace plus merit or faith plus sacraments or obedience or whatever it may be, which is similar to what I've just read to you. This, dear ones, you're saying, how does this have anything to do with Romans chapter 9? This is exactly why Paul is bringing this up in Romans chapter 9. Because Israel, in quoting Isaiah, Israel at that time when Isaiah was preaching, Israel was totally apostate. Israel was completely apostate. They had, they had, they were, they failed to believe. And yet, Paul says there's a remnant. I'm going to save, Paul says, God says, I'm going to save a remnant. I'm going to save the ones that I have picked. There's no plan B with God. God doesn't come up to the line and call an audible. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. I didn't expect that defense. Now I'm going to have to change my play. God knows his people, right? So let's look at this. You've read the verses 27 through 29. Let's go to Isaiah. Let's keep something in Romans 9. We're going to jump back there. Go to Isaiah Chapter 1. Isaiah is such, oh man, he is such a powerful, powerful prophet in the Old Testament. He is one of the major prophets. Major in the sense that his book is big. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Some guys have actually called it the little Bible. Because there's 66 chapters. And they, interestingly, they coincide with much of the Bible itself. Isaiah chapter 1. Focusing on this doctrine of the remnant, that God chooses those to salvation and they will be saved. They will not be lost. They will come to faith in Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts. Listen, this is the condition of Israel at the time of Isaiah. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. A very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. 
that sounds pretty similar. Didn't we just read that in Romans chapter 9? That's the quote. That's what Paul's quoting from. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah says. You rulers of Sodom. He just called Isaiah Sodom. We know what Sodom is. Sodom is the Sodomites. Those that were knocking at the door of Lot's house to come in and have sexual relations with angels. He just called Israel Sodom. Hear, ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? This is the word of the Lord, saith the Lord. I am full of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of the lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when, I, when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you, mock, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, and put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the, the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword for your mouth of the Lord. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. What kind of condition do you think Israel is in and Judah is in? Judah is being uh, preached to here. But nonetheless, what kind of condition, spiritual condition, does this convey to you? Just in the opening chapter of Isaiah. Would you say that they're pretty well, they're, they're doing very well spiritually? No, they're in a bad place. In fact, they're apostate and they're about to be taken to the Babylonian captivity. That, that it's close. So Isaiah's preaching ministry is predominantly through the book of Isaiah. It's judgment. And even at one point, God says, look, you're going to preach to them and they're not going to hear you. You're just going to keep preaching the word and they're going to get hardened and hardened and hardened. They're not going to listen to you, Isaiah, but keep preaching anyway. Does it remind you of anything? What were you going to say, Kim? What point did God change his mind in the way they, you know, Back in the Old Testament, we're offering that. At this point, I mean, where in the, I'm not there yet, where in the Old Testament had that become uh, tiring to God? Or, yeah. or Well, in the th- throughout the history of Israel, there have been many, many bad kings. After Israel desired a king, Saul, they wanted a king. Give us a king. Saul disobeyed God, disobeyed Samuel. And we, we, enter, we see this after David and, and Solomon. We see that the kingdoms, they just become this roller coaster of wickedness and idolatry. And then there's some good kings and there's many bad kings and they're up and down. Their worship is going over. God, to answer your question, God did not change. God's plan 
did not change. This has been God's plan. He knew that Israel would rebel. He knew that Israel would turn away from his ways. He knew that they'd come with vain worship. That's what that is. This, that from verses 9 through 18, Isaiah is preaching about the vain, empty, ritualistic worship of Israel. God has not changed. Who has changed? Well, from the beginning, they're sinful, but Israel... Israel is demonstrating the sinfulness of man while God is continually exalting his righteousness. And what we're going to see here is that God loves Israel. He loves Judah. He loves Israel. He's going to send them into captivity. They're going to go into judgment. They're going to go into exile. They're going to be pulled from their land. But he secures a remnant. His loving grace and mercy, he's going to bring a remnant back. That's what this whole passage is about. That word remnant is that they have not been utterly cast off. That God has secured a small remnant that will always, that will always be his people. So the captivity is their trial and tribulation. It, it is a judgment for their sinful worship and their idolatry. And for instance, the northern kingdom, Israel, the ten tribes, they went to the Assyrian captivity. Judah and Benjamin... The two tribes of the south, which is who Isaiah is preaching to, they're going to go to the Babylonian captivity. Maybe you've heard of Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Daniel and uh, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They go into the fiery furnace. That's all in Babylon. That's all after this. But, but nonetheless, that's their judgment. And, and even look at Daniel. The, Israel's carried, Judah's carried away into the Babylonian captivity, and then God has Daniel. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whenever, whenever Nebuchadnezzar played the music and said, bow to the idol, uh, bow and worship, the, probably the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, Shadrach, and Abed, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, yeah, no, we're not doing that <laughs> because we only worship one true God. You see how God even secures a faithful remnant even in the midst of, of judgment. And we can take that to our understanding right now. Right now, God has his people. And they will hear his voice, and they will come to him. Okay, let's go. Yes and no. Yes. Yes in the sense of literally with Israel's history, because that's one of the big challenges of studying Isaiah. Many of the prophecies that Isaiah made were fulfilled literally in his own lifetime, and then literally after his lifetime. For instance, Cyrus. You ever hear of Cyrus? Mm -hmm. Cyrus was born. Pause. Back up. Isaiah named Cyrus by name 150-ish years before Cyrus was even born, that Cyrus would be the one to deliver the people back to the land. But who is the ultimate redeemer? This is the answer to your question. It was fulfilled literally in Isaiah's time, after Isaiah's life, in Christ, and the future prophecies that, will, that were made in Isaiah, what do you think they're going to be? If they were fulfilled literally in Isaiah's lifetime, literally after Isaiah's lifetime, what do you think they're going to be fulfilled like in the future? Probably literally, right? We'd probably be able to take that hermeneutic and apply it to future events as well. Um, but there's much contention uh, around those things. Nonetheless, we're going to, that, that, that point is just going to get hammered home if we get there. Um, I'm speaking quickly because we literally have only 17 minutes and I'm bummed out about that. Um, Isaiah was a brilliant, brilliant man. His writing, this, this is a literary masterpiece. I don't care if you're a believer or unbeliever, you cannot look at the book of Isaiah and say, this is just phenomenal. 
the vivid imagery and language that Isaiah uses is, is just beautiful. We have reason to believe, this is just tradition, but that Isaiah was probably the one that's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 37, of they've been sawn asunder. We have reason to believe that Isaiah was probably martyred, sawn in half, tradition teaches, by a wooden saw. Um, so this man had a life that was filled with trial, preaching to a people that would not hear. He had two sons. And by the way, Isaiah is quoted more than any other Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. He's quoted 65 times in the New Testament, many of which were by Jesus. He's mentioned 20 times by name in the New Testament. This is a very, very wonderful man and book to study. He had two sons. One's, one of their names translated is a remnant shall return. That's the name of one of his sons. God commanded Isaiah to name his son a remnant shall return. The name of his, se- the name of his second son, imagine if you were named this, hasting to the spoil, hurry to the prey. Hasting to the spoil, hurry to the prey, get over here for dinner. <laughs> you know, it's like really impossible to say. Um, but nonetheless, they had They had meaning behind their names, and God commanded them to be named this way because they taught truth through their name. Um, No, I do not recommend that you name your children or grandchildren or push to have your grandchildren named that way. Um, John MacArthur says that he condemns, that's Isaiah, the empty ritualism of his day and the idolatry into which so many of the people had fallen. Sounds eerily similar to the apostate state of the present situation that we see today. Isaiah named Cyrus the king of Persia 150 years before Cyrus was even born and that Cyrus would return the remnant to Israel. Um, this, is, this is very interesting, Kim, because you made a point about did God change his mind with regard to the outworking of his plan with regard to Israel? No, he didn't change. He knew this was going to take place. The interesting thing is most Reformed theologians, meaning capital R theologians, will, will teach, they won't openly admit this. I would consider myself a lowercase r Reformed theologian, but nonetheless, I wouldn't even say theologian. Um, but most of their doctrine is surrounding the idea of a replacement theology. Have you ever heard of this? The, the idea that Israel has been replaced by the church or that Israel has somehow forsaken their covenant. So now they are no longer the, the people that will return to Christ or as what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9. Is Israel been cast off? Romans 9, 10, 11. Has Israel been put away with? No, because why? God has covenant with Israel that the remnant of Israel will be saved. That's what this whole thing is about. Um, nonetheless, there is no room I find in the Old Testament whatsoever or the New for that matter uh, regarding replacement theology. Um, where Israel has been replaced by the church. Let's look at our second heading really quickly. Look at verse number... If you, are you still in Isaiah? Mm-hmm. Let's look at something else quickly. Go to Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, verse 22. This is also what Paul quotes from in Romans 9. He says, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, that's reference to the covenant promise he made with Abraham, as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant 
of them shall return, the consumption decreed shall overflow the righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. Okay, turn a page to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 11. And it, I'm just trying to drive this nail home about the, the truth that Isaiah taught about a remnant of Israel that would be saved. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. What's he just saying there? We, we don't need to visit all those places. What God is saying is that he's going to gather his people. He's going to bring his people back. He's going to bring the remnant to himself. Look at verse 16 of the same chapter. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So clearly, and there's many other places as well mentioned in the book of Isaiah regarding the remnant. Isaiah is also referred to as the prophet of sovereign grace. I think that's important to emphasize. Isaiah, on the, throughout the entire book, Isaiah is preaching God's sovereign grace everywhere. I'll just mention one chapter and you can't escape the truth. If all we had was Isaiah, we would still look to Jesus Christ. How do we know? You cannot get away from Isaiah chapter 53 and not think about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is just dripping with the suffering Savior. Okay. Any questions up until this point? We are on full afterburner. I realize that. Um, and and I, I don't want to lose anybody you know, jumping through these different things. Um, but, but if there are any questions or any comments at this time before we go to heading number two... Um, I'm heading back to Romans chapter nine, verse uh, chapter nine, verse twenty-eight. By the way, Selena. I just have a question. Um, I was always taught, whether or not it's right, I don't know. Is what I'm going to ask you that this had to take place like now before Christ would return. About all the Israelites and all the, the Jews would come back to their mainland. Is that the case, or have I been misled? No, no, I wouldn't say misled, but what we can know is that based on Romans 9, 10, and 11, that we're going to look at Romans 11, by the way, that God has secured a remnant in Israel that will be saved. Um, as far as the land disputed presently at this time, that's a, that's a hotly contentious um, line of thinking. Um, it's quite obvious to me that you know Israel is in the land of Israel right now but nonetheless there's a mosque sitting on the temple mount which says a lot <laughs> you know it, it, it's almost like a clear picture as to what's what's going on in the land of Israel um, I do believe that the Bible teaches a millennial kingdom where Christ will reign um, and in the land so um, I think that's clearly taught in scripture I also believe that there is a remnant of Israel that will be saved as well. Um, taught not only here in Isaiah, in Romans 9, 10, 11, also in the book of Revelation. But, um, Does this have anything to do with 144,000? Yes. Those are Messianic Jews. There are Messianic Jews that are Jews that have been converted to Christ right now. Um, you know, so, so those, those are truths that, that, that Christ, that they're the 144,000, the 12,000 from every tribe. Um, 
to me, it's quite clear that that's regarding Messianic Jews that will be saved during the tribulation period. Um, okay, Romans chapter 9, verse number 28. This is really cool, and I really want to make sure we get this because this is just, this is just so, so good. I'm so glad. <laughs> this is just wild that Paul went here. He quotes from Isaiah in verse number 28. This is the quote, and, and I'm actually going to read it in the NASB as well because I think it does a, it's a better translation. But for he will finish the work. Who's he? That's God, the Lord, will finish the work. What's that tell us? Again, salvation is of the Lord. And cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And let's just stop there. The Lord will, this is what the NASB reads, the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. So that, that's wonderful. What we just learned there in verse number 28 is that God will send his word to accomplish its work thoroughly and quickly. His word will save. What, what, how, do we, how do we hear this from the words of Jesus? In the mouth of Jesus, he himself said in John chapter 10, my sheep will hear my voice and they will come to me. How do they hear his voice? Are they like off in a field somewhere saying, Lord Jesus, please just speak to me in the wind? No, they're talking about the Bible. Jesus is talking about the Bible, that his sheep will hear his word. His sheep will hear him at his word. Not some mystical idea that, you know, you've got intuition flowing through your brain and you think it's Jesus. It's the word of God. God's people will hear his truth. There's so much more that we can say about that, but for the sake of time, I'm going to keep hitting the gas pedal. Let's look at verse number 29. And as Isaiah, or Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah. Now, oh, wow, that, that just, that's just so interesting. The Lord Sabaoth, do you have any idea the significance of that name of God? The Lord Sabaoth, it means the Lord of warrior hosts. It means the Lord of angelic armies. It, it literally means that God, the Lord, who is sovereign over everything. Why? Because it's His. He made it. It's the Lord of hosts. He, he reigns it all. That's, that's what Paul's pulling from right here. He says, the Lord Sabaoth. He's the absolute sovereign God of hosts, the Lord of warrior hosts. God's, God owns it all. He can do whatever he wants with it and with those people that are his. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, this is the NASB, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What did, what did Paul and Isaiah just say? If God had not intervened, if God had not Unless God, unless the Lord, that's what Paul is saying. If God does not intervene in your salvation, you are not saved. That's the whole point of this thing. That's what I was trying to tell you in the beginning. If you say that it's the new birth and you've just left off of that truth. If God does not reach, if God does not come in and save us, if God does not, if he's not the sole active agent in salvation, dear ones, we're like Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that's, that's the epitome of wickedness, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, Sodom and Gomorrah, you can't take a bus to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You could maybe take a submarine because it's at the bottom of the southern end of the Dead Sea, covered in salt. And I was watching an interesting documentary. Maybe you've seen this documentary. There's these like uh, secular scientists walking down around the southern end of Sodom and Gomorrah and they're picking up stones and they're saying, yes, this is what we call brimstone. We have no idea where it comes from. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I do. I know where it came from. It buried Sodom and Gomorrah there. And they literally hold up the rocks that are at the southern tip of the Dead Sea and they say, yes, this is brimstone. Funny how the Bible says that brimstone rained out of heaven and pummeled Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. Absolutely buried it in the bottom of the Dead Sea. And and Isaiah and Paul and those who have truly been born again will say, unless God reached into my life, I'm like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the seed is Jesus? The seed. Say, which seed? That left us a seed? Oh, no. Except the Lord said, no, that seed? seed that he, the, the seed that he is referencing there is with regard to those who will be saved in Christ. If he had not, if he had not left us the remnant that would be saved in, in Christ, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been, to, why? Because mankind is totally depraved. Romans chapter 3, remember? Our mouths are like open graves. Uh, that we have the poison of asps under our tongues. Uh, we are wretched apart from the work of God. Salvation is not contingent upon our cooperation. Rather, unless God intervenes, we are absolutely and disgustingly sinful. Can we look at another verse real quick? Just take, if you're in Romans 9, turn the page, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans 9 and 11 are like bookends of Romans chapter 10. It's one unit, it's one group, it's one literary unit, 9, 9, 10, and 11. And Paul begins with Romans 11, almost like he began Romans chapter 9. He says in verse number 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? He's talking about Israel. God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. There you go, Kim. The seed of Abraham is the same seed he's talking about with Isaiah quoting Isaiah, how, excuse me, let me back up here a little bit, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. You want to really do an interesting study? Study Benjamin. Study why Benjamin is with Judah in the southern kingdom, and you'll be like, what? Study that. It's really wild. Verse 2, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not that the scripture saith of, uh, of Elias, of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I'm left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, Also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's what this is all about. God is not on plan B. He is navigating his plan exactly how he has planned from before the foundation of the world. Let me give you some quick points of application as we bring this time to a close, okay? I have five, all right? I'm going to try to go quick and just maybe amplify some of these factors. Number one, 
God will save his people, period. There are actually Christians that are out there right now who wonder if they're saved today or will they be saved tomorrow, and they vacillate back and forth about their their security and their assurance. You can't read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 and not escape from the fact that we are saved by God and we are secure by his grace and his work in Christ. Number two, I've mentioned this many times, God does not have a plan B. God is not on plan B. God does not change. God does not deviate from the course that he had set before the foundation of the world. Romans chapter 11 verses 1 through 5 clearly say that. Number three, when all of God's people come to salvation, Christ is coming back. We can, Christ is coming back. The moment all of God's people come to Christ, Christ is, is returning. We can preach till we're blue in the face. We can evangelize until we can drop from that. We will not bring one more person into the kingdom that God will not sovereignly save. His sheep hear his voice again. And I made mention of this rather clearly, but quickly, and I want to just read this very uh, slowly so that you can grasp this. And this is application number four. Our sanctification does not solidify or secure our salvation. Our sanctification is evidence of our salvation. Okay? Our salvation does not solidify, excuse me, our sanctification does not solidify or secure our salvation. Our sanctification is evidence of our salvation. And I thought this is the fifth point, and this is, I thought this was really good. I'm going to give you two verses with this. God's flock, I think you can see this clearly from the verses that we've read tonight, especially Isaiah chapter 1. God's flock is a little flock. Have you felt the sense of like being overwhelmed and overrun in the world as a Christian? I mean, it's hard not to think and feel that way, I think, um, at times. Nonetheless, God's flock is a little flock and they will be saved. We've always been a little flock. We've always been a small number. We've always been, been marked by, by low numbers. That's the way Christianity is. Large numbers never mark true believers. That's why these, these massively huge megachurches with thousands and thousands of people, you cannot walk in there and say that everyone in this place is saved. It, it's, it would be... It would be logically, it would be foolish to think that. Just because there are large numbers does not mean that something right is going on. Now, there are rare cases where there are large churches that are preaching true biblical doctrine and they're on fire for God. Um, But nonetheless, it's not about numbers. We have always been a small flock. Here, I'll give you two verses to, to emphasize this. In the book of Matthew, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. It's a small number. Matthew 22, verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. That's one sentence. That's Jesus speaking, Many are called, few are chosen. 
Then went the Pharisees, check this out. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Did you catch it? When, when guys preach about and teach about what I'm teaching you in Romans 9, the same thing happens that happened to Jesus when he taught these things. When Jesus said, for many are called, but few are chosen, that lit the fuse and the Pharisees said, nope, we are going to get you. And from that point on, when he starts using that chosen talk, they're going to hunt him down. It's the same thing today. If we start preaching and teaching these wonderful diamond doctrines that are found all throughout the scriptures about the remnant and God's sovereign action and salvation, they're going to hunt you down too. It's just the way it is. Remember, Isaiah was sawn with a wooden saw. Isaiah. We think. Anyway, time is up. And that makes me sad.